So open up in your Bibles to Psalm 51, please. Open up to Psalm 51, and then, if you want to, keeping a finger in Psalm 51, turn back to Genesis 43. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. If turning in the Bible is kind of tricky for you, just, just stay in Psalm 51. But I read this this week, and this kind of just, just to hit my funny bone. And then the Lord brought it back to mind this morning as I was thinking about the sermon and, and what's going on in, in Psalm 51. In Genesis 43, verse 18, this is a... So uh, Joseph has already been sold into slavery in Egypt, and he has uh, risen through the ranks there, and he's now second in command of all, of all Egypt. There's a great famine in the region, and everybody has come to, to Joseph to buy grain. Now his brothers have come. Now he recognizes them. This is their second trip back to Egypt. He recognizes them, and he, he calls them... He has his servants bring him into his house. And now we read this in verse 18. And the men, Joseph's brothers, the ones who had sold him to slavery, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. They didn't know it was Joseph, by the way. So there's a lot of little intrigue right here. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us his servants and seize our donkeys. (laughs) That's a little funny, right? Like, in your moment of peril, he's going to fall upon us and make us his slaves. And what about our donkeys? (laughs) Like, I've... I, I, could, I could do a couple more minutes on this. This is just really good stuff, right? But how true is this for us? Like, how many times are we like, oh, these big, huge things, but, you know, and this little thing in my house, oh, and, and we just, like, that is just the thing that tips us over into just despair. This is a good illustration of, of how humans have a hard time differentiating wants from needs, <laughs> I would really like my donkeys to be okay. I mean, I don't want harm on them, but compared to me being in lifelong slavery far away from home, like, it's just not a priority, right? There's something about just being a human that has a hard time. As soon as we sort of have our our literal needs taken care of, we immediately kind of bump the need category up a little bit bigger. I need food, clothing, shelter, right? And now I need a hoodie and a new KitchenAid and... I need, like, I need these things that, eh, I don't know if that's the proper language. We have a hard time with this, and especially during the Christmas season, this, these questions get a little fuzzy. And it, it's so heightened right now, right? Because you're, you're coming up with shopping lists, so you're thinking about the people in your life. What do they need? You know, they need a kick in the pants. They don't need more nonsense in their life. And what do they need? Okay. They, most of them don't need anything, right? But then we're also talking a lot about Jesus and the Bible and we're singing and it's Christmassy stuff. And we're thinking, okay, where does all that fit in to my need-want matrix? Where's the God stuff at in that? Do I need, do I need a new tie? You know, remember, remember when people used to wear ties and you'd get dad a tie? Like that doesn't even make any sense anymore, but do I need a new tie or do I need a clean heart? Do I, do I want a new tie, but I don't? 
what's the relation? Do I want a clean heart or do I need a clean heart? Or am I not even really, it's not even really on my radar? Do I want a new spirit, a renewed spirit within me? Or do I want that, that new you know, uh, trilogy of books? Or do I, do I need, I really feel like I need that right now, but it would be nice to have a renewed spirit. Or I need, an, I need a new spirit, and it would be nice to have those books. How does that, how do we understand the relationship between wants and needs in, in our relationship with God and with what the Bible is holding out to us? And so we come to Psalm 51, verses 7 to 12. David's prayer here is going to give us some clarity on this question. It is going to help us under, put, put this in proper perspective. So let's look at Psalm 51, verses 7 to 12. There's 12 requests here in these six verses. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, before we, we're going to just look at the, the 12 requests here in a sort of a general perspective, and then we're going to walk through and look at a few of them specifically to kind of get a, a sense of the logic and the flow of David's prayer here. And here's just two, two general features of these requests. Uh, there's a lot of them, right? There's, there's 12. If I asked you to come up with 12 requests right now, what are 12 things that you're praying for? Like, at what point is your list going to start transitioning into your Christmas wish list? Like, I got world peace, that's number seven. And I guess while well, I'm at I me, mean, new socks, I don't know. I mean, like... He's got 12. This is a lot of things. This is a lot of requests. And the other thing that you might notice is that these are very different kinds of requests than we normally ask. Like, unless you're self-consciously quoting Scripture, you're probably not saying any of these things in your prayers. Right? What's our prayer? It's a, you know, God, thank you for this day. Please bless them, this, that. Help me with this, that, those. Amen. Here's 12 somewhat unusual prayers that, again, unless you're self-consciously quoting Psalm 51, you're probably not praying. So let's think for just a second here about why is David praying so many of such different kinds of prayers? And he's doing this because of verses 5 and 6. What we were, what we were looking at last week. Notice how verse 5 and 6 both start. You remember this? The behold. This is a lesson that David is drawing from his contemplation of his sin. Verse 3, I know my transgression and my sin. Verse 4, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And so verse 5 and 6 of the lessons. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I'm not just somebody who does sins, I am a sinner. And verse 6, behold, you delight, you delight in truth in my inward being. You try to teach me wisdom in my secret heart. That you're not just a God who, who judges and, and tells us commandments, but you're a God who loves me and has a heart for me. So the lessons of verses 5 and 6 become the prayers of verses 7 and 12. This is such an important connection. David's view of himself and of God, that shift 
through contemplation of his sin and of God's word is what produces the prayers so many and so different of verses 7 to 12. Our prayers reflect our primary, our functioning truth. Right, there's two things that David understands now and why those things matter so much to him is what we see in these prayers. So David understands, first of all, he understands his sinfulness. In sin, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So here's what sin does in our lives, right? I've got an old truck that I drive. Uh, the steering's pretty tight on it right now. But sin is like... Uh, the, the steering column in an old truck. Growing up, there was a like, 1970s F-150 that was on our uh, Baptist church compound. And uh, as I got to be a high school guy and I could help out with stuff, we would drive it around and collect trash in it. And it was one of these, 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 these steering wheels. Remember, you've probably driven something like this where you had a full foot of play before the wheels turned, right? So you were either, to, to go straight, you had to constantly be doing this, right? The only time you didn't move the wheels if it didn't matter if you were going straight. This is what sin does in our lives. Sin makes it so that we are always going off one way or the other. Everything that sin touches in our lives, it nudges off course, and we are sinners. So therefore, sin, David is understanding this now, if that's what's true of me as a sinner, sin makes everything worse. Sin makes everything worse. So there's nothing that I can go into in my life, no relationship, no situation, no project, no thought, no, no, nothing I can touch with any part of my being that I don't need some help with. Because I'm going like this all the time if I'm paying attention or I'm running into stuff. That's what sin means. Sin makes everything worse, and so David prays more and differently than we tend to pray. The other thing David understands is something about God. We saw in verse 3 uh, that you may be justified, he says, in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is, he's, he's, he has right judgment. We might say he, has, he knows right from wrong. Do you know right from wrong? Sometimes we're like, I don't know what to do. God always knows what to do. He always knows right from wrong, and he has a, a heart of delight for us. Verse 6, you delight in truth. You delight in me being whole, being one. God's perfect judgment and his heart mean that if God's involved in a situation, he's going to make it better. God makes everything better. God is the best party planner. He knows exactly right from wrong. He's the life of the party, and he's the best janitor. Those, those three traits don't always tend to be in the same person. But David's saying, I see this. Your judgment is true. Your word is true. Your heart is for me. You're going to teach me wisdom. You're going to be there in all of these different ways to bless me. So because David understands that God makes everything better, he understands every, every relationship I'm in, every situation I'm in, every project I'm working on needs God. Me by myself is going to do what to all of those relational situations and difficult conversations and projects? Me by myself is going <laughs> to... But God involved, he's going to make it all better. 
So there's more requests here than we normally pray. There's, there's more requests here than we normally pray. Right? The Bible says you, you have not because you ask not. Why aren't you asking? Because you think you're all right. David has been disabused of this illusion. And so he knows he's not all right. So he asks for a lot more stuff and there are different kinds of things because David sees the truth. He knows what he actually needs. He knows what he needs. Friends, this is what we need. These prayers are the truth. David's prayers here reflect the truth. He has held the truth up to the mirror of his life and these prayers are what reflect back. Has the truth been held up to your life? What reflects back? These prayers are what reflect back. Right? This, this then is what we need. What God offers here is what we need. What we need, God wants to give us. And here's the great thing. What you need, you actually super really want, right? Like if we deprived you of, of food and water, shelter, how many days before those items come onto your Christmas wish list at the very, very top, right? <laughs> what I most want for Christmas is a warm meal, right? If this is what we need, this is actually truly what every one of us wants. What God wants to give us what we need, and what we truly want. So what is it that these prayers describe? Let's, let's look at verses 7 to 12. It can, it can sort of seem like it's just sort of a hodgepodge of religious catchphrases. Like David just took the, like, the, the Psalm 8 ball and he like, shook it and he got one and he wrote it down. He took the next one and he shook it and wrote it down. But it's actually describing a journey of transformation. From verses 7 and 12, is a journey of transformation. We see that he starts in verse 7, purge me and wash me, and ends in verse 12, uphold me with a willing spirit. Put me to work and give me what I need to do this. So he goes on a journey. You know, there's this question that lingers through all of the, uh, sort of the, the, the Christmas, Christmas miracle literature, let's just call it. The, uh, can a person change? Can Christmas really change? Can the little kid, you know, holding out the present to the, the mean old person really change their heart? You know, can, can anybody really change? And that's the question that this, this passage addresses. Can we go on a journey of transformation? Let's see what this journey of transformation looks like here. It begins in verse 7 with, Purge me with hyssop. You guys have any recipes that include hyssop? Any Christmas recipes? It's a great Christmas spice to add. That's what hyssop. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The journey begins with the gospel of forgiveness and welcome. So when he says purge me with hyssop and, and wash me clean, hyssop was a plant that had aspects of it where it could function like a kind of a wand or a brush. So they would use it in Levitical rites to dip in water and then sprinkle on people or dip in, uh, dip in something and, and wipe it on a doorpost, a doorframe. Its symbolic connection and, and why I think David's using it here goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. 
the first mention of hyssop in the Bible is in the Passover rite that God institutes for Israel on their way out of Egypt. When he says, take the blood of a lamb, dip hyssop in it, and then wipe that on the doorpost of your house, and the angel of death will pass over that. And so that salvation, that covenant salvation, becomes symbolic in the life of Israel so that everyone who is unclean, if there's mold growing on a house, if there's leprosy on your body, if you've done something that that makes you unclean and sets you apart from the community, you're brought back in through a sprinkling of the hyssop. Hyssop in, in water or hyssop in blood, it brings you back in. And so David is saying, he's starting this by saying, God, I need, I need, I need a new Passover. I need a new Passover. I need the blood of the Lamb to wash me clean. I see that I am, I'm outside, I'm cut off, I'm like a leper. I'm untouchable. I'm in the place of death. I deserve it. I'm in that place. And I need you, God, to do something to bring me back to you. I think something happens to all, all of us, almost all of us, all of us, at some point early, where we feel, I don't belong. I'm, I'm cut off. I'm outside. I'm unclean. There's something wrong with me. You know, we talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about, I, I don't measure up. I'm not sure. Even if, you're, even if you're in the group, you think, well, I don't know if, they, if everybody else in the group really thinks I belong in the group. I remember going to, going to a graduate school that was a little more challenging to get into, and I felt like I got in. I felt like, well, I was number 12 out of the group. I didn't belong there. There's no way I belonged here, so I, I would be quiet. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really try to make much of myself there because I thought, I'm going to say something stupid. I'm going to embarrass myself. At the end of the, the two-year program, one of my friends I'd made in the group, he said, I really wish you would have spoken up more. I was like, well, I, I didn't belong. I'm not sure I belonged. And how many of us just live our whole lives feeling this way? Feeling like I'm not in, I'm, I'm, I'm out, I'm not clean, I'm not deserving. And so, and so we've got, we, we develop a sort of a, 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 we develop a protocol for ourselves. If I do this, if I live this way, if I have this discipline, if I, if I make these choices, if I do these good deeds, I, I'll be okay. I, then I kind of belong. The only place in all the world that there was a way to get back in for sure was in Israel. The only, only place in all the world to know that you were washed clean, to know that you were welcomed back in, that all your sins were forgiven was in Israel. I love what this, this uh, older lady says to King David after the Psalm 51 stuff. She says to him in 2 Samuel, God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. That's the only, this is the only place in the world where this protocol exists because our God wants to bring the outcast back in. David's only hope, and he knew this, was in what the temple promised that through the blood of the Lamb, outsiders, outcasts, the unclean, can be welcomed back in. 
And so we see that the journey to that, that life of trueness, God desires truth in the inner being, that life begins here under the dripping hyssop. And so, friend, there's no shortcut for this. There's no getting around this. There's no looking at the death of Jesus for our sins and saying, just give me the wisdom stuff. Just teach me how to live without Jesus. Every journey to wholeness has to start here with I'm a sinner who doesn't deserve to be brought in, but Jesus has died. I may be forgiven and I may be brought back in. This is where all of us start. I want you to notice what he says after he says, purge me with hyssop and wash me. He says, and I shall be. Do you see that? And I shall be clean. And I shall be whiter than stone. This is very important. He doesn't say that anywhere else in this psalm. He says, I will. Here he says, you do it, I shall be. It shall be done. The gospel is true because God does it. And if God does it, then it's done. I really like to feel like the gospel is true for me. That's a really nice feeling. But how I feel about what God has done doesn't change the truth of what God has done. If you've been purged with hyssop, if you've been washed clean, then you are. And you know, for us, it's even more clear. In the Old Testament, there was all of these... uh, religious rituals and ceremonies for cleansing a person, for, for getting their sins forgiven. You know what it is in the New Testament when Jesus shows up and lepers come to him or unclean people come to him? You know what cleanses them? He touches them. The whole book of Leviticus is reduced to Jesus' finger. If Jesus has touched you, if, if he is in your life, if you've put your faith in him, then you are clean. You shall be clean, and you are. So this is where we start, though. We start by coming back to Jesus. And then the story continues in verse 8. We're just going to look at a couple highlights here. Verse 7 and then verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is the hope of redemption. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The, the breaking of bones here is a metaphor. And what's the, what's the metaphor of? For what sin does to us. Sin does deep, bone level, permanent damage. Now, I've broken some bones, but with, you know, x-rays and casts, and like, it's pretty much, I've got my whole range of motion. And, right, if you've broken a bone, it's probably not a debilitating injury. Back in this culture, whew, Right? You were going to limp the rest of your life. You were never going to be able to, to carry what you used to be able to carry. You were going to have limited abilities for the rest of your life because of this broken bone. And God, the bones that you have broken, God lets this happen. Kids these days have amazing playgrounds, don't they? What was the playground like when you were a kid? You know what it was for me at a private Christian school? It was discarded construction stuff. It was giant concrete cylinders, some this way and some this way. And every single recess, 
you had scrapes and scratches, right? Guaranteed. Because it was like the raw edge of jagged concrete and rebar sticking out. And you're playing tag around this stuff and wrestling and... Right? What kind of responsible adults... You guys who were adults in the 70s and 80s, what were you doing? <laughs> Letting us do this kind of stuff, right? God allows this stuff. Parents allow this. And, and there's no hope of non-injury. Right? That's not a thing. You're not living in this world without sin making deep, permanent damage to you. That's just this world. But what's unique about what God holds out to us is that here and only here, he says, the broken spirit can rejoice. Hey, what happens to your broken bones as you get older? Do they rejoice? Right? You go, oh. Right? They, they complain more. So what does it mean to say that the, the bones that are broken are now rejoicing? What is that referring to? It's talking about Redemption. That's talking about when the story of my folly and my sin and all the pain that I caused, that story now gives comfort and hope and light to other people. That's what it's talking about. And then the brokenness in my life actually reveals a beauty that had been hidden there all along by God. That's what this is talking about. We need to be forgiven and welcome back in. We need the hope of redemption. And then lastly, let's look at verses 10 to 12. We need to be of use. We want a sense of righteous purpose. What do you see? He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He asks for proper motivation. He asks for a heart that loves what God loves. That's that, that good heart. And give me a good attitude, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I want an attitude, a spirit in me that approaches everything the way that the Holy Spirit would approach those things. I want the spirit to shape my spirit. Because if I try to approach things without love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, all the fruit of the spirit from our study in Galatians, if whatever I approach without that stuff, and I try to work my righteousness without the Spirit in my spirit, what happens? Ten times out of ten, somebody in my house is crying. <laughs> That's what happens when I bring my sense of righteousness without the Holy Spirit of God in my spirit. I want that in me as well. The right motive, the right attitude, but all of it comes to verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give me excitement again, God, about what you have done. What you do with that hyssop and that blood to cleanse and forgive sinners. Give me excitement about your mission and uphold me with a willing spirit. Make me eager to get to work. I want you to notice something about verse 12, though. It's still a prayer. Right, so, so Christianity is not... Hey, get washed and get to work. You got saved? You met Jesus? Now <laughs> grab, a, grab a hammer and start breaking rock. Like, let's, let's get to work. What this is, and this whole journey, is let God work in your life. And then 
Look to God to work in your life and ask God to work in your life and look, let God work in your life. The whole thing from start to finish is from God. Renewal from beginning to end is a prayed for thing. Where are you at in this journey? You are at a point that needs prayer. You might think, well, I got all this knowledge. I got all this church experience. I'm really sophisticated in my understanding of theology. You're still at a point where you need God to do something in you. You need God to do something in you. You need that thing, this thing, that God wants to give you. You want, this morning, what God is here to give you. Now before we close, I want to point out something. So look, so look at 7 to 12 here. It tells the story of a journey, right, of, of forgiveness, of love, of redemption, of hope coming into wholeness. It's the reversal of the journey that David had taken that led to Psalm 51. The journey that David had taken began, if you remember, when he didn't want to do what God had called him to do. He no longer had any joy in the message of God and his salvation that was supposed to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. He was done with that. He needed a siesta from that. He had no more joy in that mission. He was unwilling to go and lead the armies of Israel in the work of God. He had a wrong spirit in himself and an unclean heart. And he went out then and he fell and he broke. He became stained with sin. He was cut off. He deserved death. Our life apart from God leads to death. And this is something that all of us know. Hey, can people really change? Can people really change? They, they are all the time. They're getting worse. People can change. They get, because they're sinners. And so they go from being willing to being unwilling, from having a good motive to having a bad motive, from having a good attitude to a bad attitude, to start making more selfish decisions and more mistakes in how they handle things. And, until, and, and then they try to cover it up. And then they're guilty and ashamed and they blame and they... Right? That's, that's the journey that most of us take. It's the anti-Scrooge journey. We become Scrooge. Right? This is what sins do to us. The real question is can there be redemption for such people? Not just can they be fine, but can they be redeemed? And again, here alone in the, the, with the God of the Bible, God, David doesn't say, God, just make the pain stop. He says, God, reverse the whole thing. Bring me all the way back. Bring me all the way back. And God does. God reverses the journey of sin to death by Jesus' work, by the gift of the Spirit, 
by the new creation being born in our lives by the resurrection power of God. God reverses the journey of sin to death and puts us on the path of life. So let me encourage you this morning. Let's turn back briefly to Psalm 32. I can't prove this, but I think Psalm 32 was written by David next in the Psalter. I think it was written right after he wrote Psalm 51. Verses 1 to 5, you might notice, sort of give a, a recap summary of Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's what he does in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. And then here's the point, verse 6. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you, God, at a time when you may be found. Surely, even in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach that person. So all the praying that David does in Psalm 51, verses 7 and 12, now is turned into a command for us in Psalm 32, verse 6, which is, let everyone who knows this God pray this way. Let everyone who knows this God pray this way. He says in verse 9 of Psalm 32, he says, Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it won't stay near you. Know God and pray this way. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust the Lord and pray this way. Because as we began this morning saying, our prayers reflect our idea of who we are, our situation, and our God. Our prayers reflect our understanding of the truth. So I know that we're in a busy season. I know that things are, are going off the hook for you and you're trying to squeeze parties in and squeeze shopping in on top of everything else and, and you're getting head colds and various sicknesses. And hey, Slow down a little bit. Slow down. Pay attention to the real needs in your life that God is here to give you. Ask for all 12. Ask for everything. Ask for all of them. If you can come up with 12 requests on your own, ask for all of them. Anytime you want. And watch God work. You know, at Christmas we remember that God, He loves washing sinners clean. He loves bringing the lost home. He loves giving the broken a song. He loves renewing spirits. That's what the Bible everywhere says God wants to do, and that's what Jesus came and did. That's what Jesus came and did. What we need, what we most want. God came to give us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are God who hears the prayers of sinners. We are so thankful for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ who brings us in before you so we can ask all sorts of huge, extensive lists of requests. And we don't just have to ask for superficial things. 
we can ask for deep, transformative things. And we know that you delight in doing that work. You delight in truth in the inner being. And you want to teach us wisdom in the secret heart. Lord, you make everything better. And so, as we think about the everythings in our life that aren't going great, God, would you, by your, by your Spirit, put us in mind this week of these prayers, of the hope that we have in them, that you will work, that you want to work in substantial, meaningful, transformative ways. So Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all of these gifts that you have given us. Help us to take advantage of them, Lord, to know you truly. In Jesus' name, amen.